In our modern day capitalistic world, businesses and organizations are basically the new age tribes designed to get our collective needs met and drive innovation, technology and progress. Unfortunately, businesses may not always act for the needs of our collective species, and for this reason, they can often be associated with notions of greed and evilness, wherein they simply strive to increase shareholder value or profit and can often lead to a dystopia. With the social and environmental catastrophes that we've been facing through this era of the Anthropocene, it is clear that businesses have played a huge role in shaping our world, whether it is for the better or for worse. Regardless of how you see business, trade or capitalism, it is clear that they play a pivotal role in our society's progress. So how do we reconcile this paradox that businesses on one hand are at the core of our survival and progress while simultaneously cause a lot of massive catastrophes in the world? And how can we change the role of businesses in our society? To answer this, we must philosophize and see business from a new set of eyes. So, at the core of business is cooperation and collaboration, all which happen through forming relationships with each other. Underlying relationships are conversations, which are co-created and mediated through language. Language is crafted from words which are simply a bunch of sound waves that we mold to author our reality and shape the collective narrative of our species. This is what we will explore today with Cheryl Kaiser, the executive director of the Lewis Institute for Social Innovation at Babson College. Cheryl inspires people to create a positive social impact in any role, sector or community and empowers people to see the UN Global Goals as a $12 trillion market opportunity for addressing the biggest challenges of our time, such as poverty, climate change and inequality amongst many others. She is a global leader in corporate social responsibility and social innovation and is the author of the book Creating Social Value a guide for leaders and changemakers. Her infectious energy is sought by countless corporate executives and luminaries, so much so that she has directly influenced the strategy, operations, and mindsets of dozens of Fortune 500 companies, global NGOs, community organizations, and academic institutions. So let's get right into conversing about the role of business in society and how relationship, conversations, and language play a pivotal role in shaping a positive future of our society. What I'd like to start off by asking you, Cheryl, is if you could share your story and tell us why you do what you do, aside from the things we've mentioned here. Well, that's terrific. And uh, I'm so excited about this conversation because this is where I live. In fact, this is where I've always lived. So a little bit about me. Um, I grew up with activist parents. My father was an, and I used to, I like to say to people, I have a slide whenever people say, tell us your background. It's a slide with two intersecting circles, change things, start things and break things when necessary. And so, um, I grew up with a father who was an entrepreneur, uh, a businessman, but he always saw, uh, always bucked the status quo. So back in the 60s, which is a long time ago, 
uh, he was, uh, he came out as the first decorated Marine. So he was a Marine at Iwo Jima in World War II. He was a decorated Marine, but he believed that the war in Vietnam was wrong. And he came out as a decorated Marine against the war. That was very brave. That was very courageous because nobody was coming out to, uh, with that status of military status against the war. He started a moratorium for peace. And so that's my father. He always, uh, my father grew up in the South and always believed that public health was the most important uh, a right of everybody. My mother was an entrepreneur. She started one of the first natural food stores uh, in New England, one of the largest ones at the time in the country. And I was raised by a vegan grandmother. So you can already start to tell my background was not normal back in the 50s and 60s. And, uh, but it was incredibly exciting. And I learned how to live uh, with my values. When things were wrong, you spoke up. It didn't matter whether you were a successful businessman or a successful entrepreneur, you would use your voice to, to be able to say what was true to you and what you wanted to see, how you wanted to see the world be a better place. So when I started to think about my life, I went back and got a um, degree in social policy and social work. And uh, it was the beginning of that, to your point, Shashwat, understanding the changing role of business in society. In ninth, the mid-1970s, I was fortunate enough to be a, one of the first architects at graduate school of what was then, which is now called employees assistance programs. It was the first time companies had to think about, gee, people come to work with not just their head and their hands, they might come with problems from home or they might be ill. So employees assistance programs were those benefits to employees to say, we as a company care not just about you working in the, in the business, but we care about your life and we will provide you with benefits. That was the first time companies started to look at stakeholders as their employees, not just about how they were gonna further the business. Fast forward, I then was very fortunate to be involved with the work-life movement, which was basically in the 90s when large companies needed to get women back in the workforce. They realized they had to do something different. They had to provide benefits that could get them into the workplace and look at them as human beings and full systems. And so I was part of that movement, which was again, the changing role of business and society. And then the third big one was corporate social responsibility, where for 15 years I helped lead the Boston College Center for Corporate Citizenship. And that was truly examining the changing role of business and society, because what was happening and what has continued happen to today, the lines between business, society, um, spiritual community, um, social sector, they're blurred. The lines are blurred. And I like to call it the blurred vision. And it's the opposite. You like the word, you like the whole notion of language. Well, if I said to you, I have blurred vision, you would say, wow, that means you can't see things clearly. For me, blurred vision is exactly what we want. We want to blur the line so that we actually see things better. Blurred vision, in my point of view, is clarity because I'm seeing it from multiple perspectives. To me, a blurred vision is when it's not blurry uh, because you don't get to see the impact of society. And all these things are happening at the same time. Faith communities, education communities, business communities, social sector, 
government sector, they can't do it alone. It's all about, as you talk about, cooperation, collaboration. And in order to live in a blurry world, you have to create new language. So that's about me. I love creating new language. I love blurring lines because when you blur lines, new things happen and you break down those silos of how we operate, which to your point has actually created this dystopia, have, has created this false sense of this is business, this is society, this is a shareholder, this is an employee, this is an investor, this is a supplier. Uh-uh. It's all one system. And if you don't see it as a system, you actually will start to have the problems that we have had for decades. That's why we have climate, you know, we have the whole issue of climate change. That's why we have inequity in pay. That's why we have, you know, gender issues. If you look at all the issues that the global goals address, it's because we have not looked at the world as a system. And business has looked at itself as something that should control resources, not mobilize and, and, and fortify resources. You know, uh, we thought we had to control things. You know, businesses would, would extract from the earth whatever they needed to make their products and services, not thinking about what would happen if you extracted too much from the earth, right? Or they put too much bad stuff into the, uh, into the earth's atmosphere, or they paid people too little, or they paid people that were too young, or they paid people that were, you know, unethical. So you have to, to your point, the changing role of business is uh, to create a new blurred vision whereby we can see more clearly. Wow, Cheryl, so much you shared. Uh, Xavier, did you want to say something? I saw you on mute. Yeah, f for sure. I mean, thank you so much for the, the fantastic uh, introduction and uh, for that whole, I, I don't, it was just, I don't know, I was just sort of in trance just listening to that. Um, but the one thing that came to mind as a, as a, as someone that, you know, I think a lot of people our age, uh, millennials and Gen Z, um, there is this insistent, insistent, need to make change so as you mentioned the sustainable goals um ethics of business there's a lot of issues that we are facing which you recognize when we first started talking there's a lot of things that need to change if we are to get to a world that we want a utopia so to speak but at the same time i think there's also a recognition uh, a lack of recognition from um people like my, myself and shashwat in the sense that we don't know how much has changed from the 60s, from the 50s, from the 40s, because we did not live in the historical context, in the social context, in the cultural context of that time. So I'd be really curious to see from your perspective, someone that's grown up with the history and the background that you've had, to see how has uh, the world of business, the world of uh, corporate social responsibility, and just generally, how has that transformed from um, when you were a child to now, as much as you can recall? Yeah, so in the world that I've spent a lot of time, which is the world of corporate social responsibility and, you know, corporate impact, it's changed a lot. And again, I feel really honored that I was part of a center that was the first global center of its kind to build the capacity of corporate uh, practitioners to get trained in corporate social responsibility. But when it first started, Xavier, it was really the Center for Corporate Community Relations. And back then, all a company was expected to do was to 
protect its license to operate. Uh, operate ethically, hire people in a community, give some philanthropy back in the community, put some lights up in a ball field, give to some churches. It was called checkbook philanthropy, that every company in every community, this is of course right now very US centric, but then it, and, I, and I'll explain that as well, because for a long time I think countries outside of the US, particularly in Europe, were a little bit farther ahead in how they saw the role of business. But from a US point of view and from, uh, from a point of view of uh, this movement, back in the mid 80s, it was all about really making the community relations person inside of a company um, better able to do what they do, be more strategic. It was called strategic community relations. But that just wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough just to give a percentage of your profits away to charity. And it was interesting because uh, it used to be said that if you were the community relations person of a company, you should be spending more time outside the business in the community making relationships than you should be inside. When we got there on corporate responsibility, we shifted and said, uh-uh. The people who are doing this need to spend more time understanding the business, because if you understand the business and the risks and opportunities that business has in the community, you're going to be able to move, you'll be able to create greater change. When I got to the center, uh, I was uh, the managing director, and we decided to rebrand the center from the Center for Corporate Community Relations, which is what CSR used to be, very transactional and very philanthropy focused. We turned it around and our board said, you've got to really re you think your strategy and it's got to be a CEO strategy. You have to be talking about things a CEO cares about. And so we started to look at how does a business operate? Not just how does it give away its money? How does it actually make its money? And that's when interrogation and really looking at what was going on became really important. And you started to see in the mid nineties when Nike was called out for child labor. That was a defining moment for the apparel industry, but it was a defining moment for business because there was nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. You had to be a naked corporation. And a wonderful guy named Don Tapscott wrote The Naked Corporation, basically saying, if you're gonna be naked, you better be buff. Meaning, if you're gonna be transparent, you better really know what's going on in your entire business. And most people didn't know that. Nike had no idea that its supply chains were hiring kids and abusing people. They just didn't know that. But that was unconscionable that a company would not know that. So now we have the world of transparency. So it has evolved. Um, I would say that we've come some way, but we haven't come as far as we need to come. I think that um, to your point, Shashwa, we've used a lot of language over the last 30 and 40 years. And some of that language has become irrelevant, right? You know, you use the word collaboration, but it's so overused. What does it really mean? I know what you guys mean because I know you. And when you say that, you mean big C collaboration, but everybody uses collaboration. Everybody uses relationship. But the fact is, is we've so, um, uh, we've, uh, we've corrupted our language that it doesn't mean anymore what it really should mean. And so we have to create new language. So uh, I started shifting away from corporate social responsibility, which was such a turnoff to people, to corporate social relevance. Because if you're socially relevant, 
and I got this term from my friend uh, Nate Garvis. And what you'll learn about me is I don't create new knowledge as an academic. I'm an integrator. I take the best language and knowledge and I try to remix it. In a way, I'm sort of like a musician. I do remixes all the time, but in a different way so people hear it differently. And so, and by the way, I just as an aside, I got as a gift a book you have to read called Two Beats Ahead. And it's about, uh, it's the head of strategy from Berkeley School of Music and the head of IDEO in Cambridge talking about the musician's mind is the mind of innovation. And so you've got to read this book, the both of you. It's exactly up your alley. But so, um, so I would say that people got more strategic and no question about it. And I feel really proud that I was part of a center that created executive education and training around the world to how to think about uh, corporate responsibility, corporate social responsibility strategically. But then I got to Babson and realized that isn't good enough. People are still greenwashing, they're bluewashing, they're red, white, and bluewashing. I mean, all these colors. And people are um, still struggling with how do you be the most powerful force, which is business, and be able to be a force for good. And there are multiple mechanisms. There's the conscious capitalism movement, there's corporate responsibility, there's ESG, there's B Corps. You know, there's so many mechanisms by which you can sort of uh, put a lens on responsible business and have them start to act differently. But to, you know, at the end of the day, it's really simple. It starts with your values and what do you care about? And if you have a strong set of values and you make all your decisions based on those values and those values are looking at all stakeholders, then you're gonna be relevant and you're probably gonna meet and exceed everybody's needs. You know, I read Arthur Book's, uh, Arthur Blank's book, Good Company. And I was skeptical when I read it because I've read so many of those books, but I really love that he had six core values and every decision and every challenge and everything that came up had to be looked through that core set of values. And if it didn't, they just didn't, uh, they didn't, um, if it didn't, if it didn't map to put people first, innovate continuously, you know, he has these six amazing values. If it didn't map to that, or it was rubbing up against that, he just didn't do it. And I think that so few people live their values. I mean, they, we have lots of mission statements and vision statements on walls, but that's not your values. You know, when you think of a set of values, you say, if I'm going to put people first, then everything I do, how I make my products, you know, how I price my products has to put people first. They have to be able to pay for it. Everybody has to pay for it, not just the wealthy. So you start to look at a set of values that drive different criteria, and those criteria drive the innovation and connection to the way that you're talking about. But that's a lot of hard work because businesses don't learn how to do that very well. They really don't. But I do think if you're a good leader, and I don't mean that you're a leader because you were given the presidency or the CEO, if you are a truly heartfelt, natural entrepreneurial leader, you will actually elicit from others leadership to be able to create and live into values that allow you 
to start to see the role of business differently. There's a reason why Patagonia is the number one company always quoted when we talk about a good company, because they're a really good company. And they have been since the day they started. Their values are upfront. They will only extend into markets that support those values. I remember when they went into food, people said, oh my God, that's the first rule of business. You don't go outside your core competency of, you know, creating the greatest apparel, but they, their reason for being is around sustainability. So going into um, Patagonia provisions made sense because they were selling sustainable food products. So even though they weren't making the most high, the most you know, innovative wetsuits or down jackets, they were providing provisions so that you would buy sustainably. So it's really clear that, that their mission is front and center, the environment, and protecting the environment and sustainability is our number one goal. And we're in here, we're in business to do that. The same way with Grayston Bakery that has an open hiring process where they will hire people that just came out of prison. And their tagline is, we don't hire people to bake brownies. We bake brownies so we can hire people. They're only in business for their core set of values. And so when you can get to that point, you actually become so desired by the marketplace, particularly today, because it's all aligning to what people want to align with. Wow, so there was lots over there and um, I'd like to just pause and take a step back, as you said, in terms of blurring the visions. You've redefined business and how it used to be things, notions of corporate social responsibility and the role of business back in the day and how it has been changing. But I'd like to invite you to put on this street philosopher hat and pause and blur the vision of what is a business? That seems quite a ridiculous question at surface level because it's like, well, how do you not know what a business is? But it seems like you're talking about new ways of thinking about business, entrepreneurship, leadership, and all these different things. And you mentioned other things about collaboration and relationships, which you can come to. But before that, just an invitation to you to step back and um, what, what comes to your mind when you look at a business and what a business truly means at the core? Well, in a street philosopher hat, a business is, uh, a, you know, to me, it's an, a business is a set of assets that are solving a problem, right? Every business goes into business to solve a problem. You know, even the worst businesses that are out there saw an opportunity and an, let's put it this way, they saw a need and they filled that need. And I think that business can be more than that. Obviously, businesses need to find a need. You're taught that at Babson. Hey, scan your environment. What's the need out there? How can you fill that need? How can you be unique in filling that need? How can you design a structure and people and processes and resources around that need? And then how do you price that in the marketplace? And those are all the right things to do for a business. But you have to step back and ask yourself, why this, why me? Why this business? Um, and why now? And what can this business do beyond just meet, uh, you know, beyond making money and serving that need? How can I now think about 
this in a broader way. So one of the things that I remember many, many years ago when it was in 2008, when downturn in the economy and I was still at the Boston College Center for Corporate Citizenship and all the heads of corporate social responsibility reached out to us and said, oh my God, we need you to come out and talk to us. So my uh, executive director and I flew out to the West Coast and we also did it on the East Coast. We met all these major companies and their heads of CSR and the heads of the foundation. And they all said, look at the good news is our CEOs do not want us to cut back on corporate responsibility. But, you know, but we, on our investment in the community, but, you know, we're being, uh, you know, where our resources are being cut back for staff and, you know, we have to do the same with less and we don't really know what to do anymore on and on and on. And so, um, and uh, just for you to know, the majority of the corporate social responsibility activities of major companies, uh, the majority of the money is given towards education K through 12. That's where the majority of CSR money goes. It goes to a lot of other things, but education. And they said, Cheryl, we don't know what to do. Should we be uh, giving money to policymakers in Washington with our money because our CEOs really want impact? Should we be creating new programs like Intel and Cisco Systems? We're always creating new programs. And I said, look it, that's how I created the Uncommon Table, Sheshwat. I said, you know what? I have no idea. That's not my job. My job is not to know what you should give your money to, but I think that's a great question and I'll create an Uncommon Table. I went to IBM, I went to Stan Litow, and I said, would you be my partner? And he said, well, uh, absolutely. And so he was our partner and we had an Uncommon Table. We actually asked people to come together, leave your brands at the door, walk through the door and let's have an open conversation about what should with all these billions of dollars that you give away in CSR money around education, what should you be focused on? And it was really great for about three quarters of it where everybody sat back and they were kumbaya, they were collaborative and they left their brands at the door and then all of a sudden they got very protective. Well, no, we do this program, we focus on this. And it got me to think that they were approaching their corporate responsibility as, um, as very tactical. And, and so I sat back and I thought to myself, um, let's not talk about education. Let's talk about how you're structured. And most of them were losing staff. So I said, you know what? This is an opportunity for you to walk around the business and go talk to people in design, go talk to people in supply, go talk to procurement and find out where are the biggest risks and where are the biggest opportunities for your business. And they had never thought about that. And they said, what do you mean? I said, I don't know, if you're an oil and gas company, what's some of the biggest risks to you? But what are some of the greatest opportunities? And when I took them away from thinking about these programs to how do you become a solutions provider for the company? How do you look at risk and opportunity? How do you look, how do you look at investments differently, not just around education, but around innovation with your own business processes? There's sort of the holy grail of what I think is the power of business, that you're gonna go in to solve a problem, but you now just built a set of assets. What else can you do with that? what things are out there that could use what you've already built. And I think companies shortchange themselves. I think they don't look at themselves once they build their business as how else can we use our assets 
to solve problems. If I look at the UN Global Goals, which is a $13 trillion marketplace, how do you look at solving problems and how do businesses who have lots of innovation and assets, I mean, business is a set of incredible assets, people assets, intellectual assets, innovation assets, financial assets, um, you know, relationship assets. They have so much and they're focusing it on that core part of their business. But now how do you open the aperture and look at your business in a new and expanded way? Just like Patagonia said, let's go into food. We know this, we are about this, these are our values. We can actually go over here. And I'd love to see more companies do that. And I also wanna see more companies really live and hold to a set of values. Because if you have a set of values, I think it opens up possibility that you can connect to society differently. Does that answer your question a little bit? Thank you. Yes, of course. I think it answers it more than uh, what I was expecting. So it sounds like business is not just uh, an entity or a group of people that tries to fulfill each other's needs, but somewhere you're talking about a notion of expanding the aperture and thinking about how businesses um, operate from a set of core values that drive the business forward, not just to uh, use assets in different areas, but use assets to solve problems that we face in, in society today that has come about more and more in the 2020 era that we're living in now. So you brought up this notion of uh, how you started these uncommon tables. And I think that's a great place to talk a little bit more about relationships and conversations, because it seems like businesses are all created from relationships where you didn't just want to tell people what to do. You said, okay, I'm going to create a space where we're going to have conversations, build relationships and see what emerges out of that place. So I'd like to speak a little bit now about what relationships are. And initially you brought up this notion of how collaboration is this very used term and everyone just throws about this term of collaboration and cooperation, uh, but no one truly understands the depth of it and it connects again to relationships. So I'm wondering how do you see relationships and collaboration and cooperation, all these things that are thrown around in a holistic way, in a blurred vision way, as you, as you said before. Yeah, so um, I've been playing with this notion of return on relationship, not in turn, uh, return on investment. Because if I look at, take the Lewis Institute, every single cent I've brought in, every single asset that's at the uh, core of this, this institute is based on relationships. Relationships that all of us, the entire team has built over time and cultivated. And I'm not just talking about transactions. And we had this conversation the other day in, in the meeting that you and I were in. And uh, I've always seen, first of all, relationships as the most important thing. So uh, there are many tools in business. One of them is called predictive index to be able to understand teams. You know, there's Myers-Briggs, there's uh, all kinds of tools. Predictive index is the one that I use and I use for my team. And when I did predictive index, it showed that I came out more relational than 99% of the population. I live through relationships. 
I will never sacrifice a relationship for anything. I won't sacrifice it for money. I won't sacrifice it for power. I won't sacrifice it for anything. Relationships mean everything. And so I have, you know, people always say, I would die to have your Rolodex. Well, it's not that I have a Rolodex. I just live in the world of relationship because that's where things happen. And, um, I talked the other day that most people don't start with that and they'll start with a transaction. And I use this example that um, there are four kinds of relationships, Joshua. There's conversations for relationship, conversations for possibility, conversations for action, and conversations for reflection. And you have to know at any given time why you're in a relationship. And because and it's not that they're all that siloed, they actually blend into each other, but I always start wanting to know who are you and why are you and what do you do? Because when I start with a conversation for a relationship, it opens up possibilities. And then you sort of go, oh, okay. So listen, you know, maybe you and I could do something together. I was just having this conversation. And so you start talking about possibilities. And then once you've gone through possibilities and you feel the energy, you say, you know, maybe we should just start to do something together. And then you go into, now let's just reflect on that process to make sure that we're, you know, that this is what we want. And it's a cycle. And so relationships mean everything because they are sustainable. And if you want, and that they're sustainable if you cultivate them, but cultivating them is a lot of energy. So when um, when people send people to me for something and they call me up and say, Cheryl, so-and-so sent me to me, sent me to you because they said you would connect me to this person. Well, that's not how you want to start a relationship with me. You want to call and say, Cheryl, I'd love to have a conversation with you. So-and-so said I should talk to you. Talk to me and then in the conversation say, well, one of the things that this person mentioned is that you know, you have a lot of connections in this world and I'd really love to know if you would be more, be willing after we've talked and I know you to connect me to this person and then I will, but I don't jump into action because I don't know you and I have to know somebody and have a relationship in order for it to be meaningful. And I think that that's the hardest thing. I think that people, because you know this as street philosophers, relationships take time. It's not a tweet. It's not a text. It's a it's an empathetic, uh, committed time with someone. It doesn't have to be years. It could be that I spent a solid ten minutes with you, and I connected to you. Relationships are about connection, and if there isn't a connection, it's not a relationship, you know, to me. Um, and I think that I'd rather us look at return on relationships because relationships are investments. They're investments of your time, your heart, your spirit. Um, they're a lot of investment. I mean, I, I much, much um, prefer to lose something tangible than a relationship because there's so much energy that goes into relationships and energy feeds energy. You know, if we go back to what we were saying about the role of business, imagine, you know, we're all hired for a job, right? And um, I actually don't hire just for a job. I hire for energy. And imagine if a company closed down for a week and took, you know, their engineers, their designers, their marketers, their this, their that, and said, hey, you know, these are our values. 
given what you guys do and who you are and what you've been doing, what if we were to do something different with this business, given your skills, your relationships, your knowledge, what else could this business be doing? But nobody engages a whole company to think about that. And some of the people in the company know far more the risks and opportunities because they work it every day, but nobody has built a relationship with them to support the business other than I hired you as an engineer in this department. That's what you do. That's what you get paid for. But what if that engineer sees something on the ground that could either be a risk or an opportunity that he, that he or she would like to act on? The, Companies have to be living companies. They have to, they have to look at themselves not as a solid entity of these people doing this function for this reason, for this outcome. They have to see them as that and more than that. They have to see them as these are energy sources that know a lot about the environment we operate in. We should be asking them, what else should we be doing? And what are you seeing that we could do better in our communities or in society? We just don't use our assets that way because we don't see them as relationships that are valuable in that way. That's very interesting, Shell. So you've blurred my vision and uh, confused me a little bit about uh, uh, a sort of two types of relationships that I see and you brought about both of them. So I'd like to put those two types out there and um, ask you a question about that. So uh, there's this work of this Jewish mystic called Martin Buber where he talks about two types of relationships. There's the I-it relationship, and then there's the I-thou relationship. An I-it relationship is a transactional relationship, very monetary, very, what can I get from you? How can I use you as a means to an end? And then on the other hand, there's this I-thou relationship, which is much more intersubjective, which which doesn't fragment relationships or people as you're an employee or you're this or you're that, but it sees the wholeness of human beings and it's much more holistic of a relationship where we're not using people as a means to an end, like we did in I it, but rather as an end in itself. So it sounded like you spoke about how oftentimes we use uh, people as this sort of I it relationship and as a means to an end. But then also you spoke about how we ultimately businesses must look at human beings as an end in itself and somewhat of this I thou relationship. But oftentimes people see business as transactional and that's why a lot of times say, oh, I don't want to get into business with my friends or my family because money will come in the way or this will come in the way. And then it, it, it business somewhere uh, is transactional for most people. So how do you reconcile these two sort of relationships and find a balance between them, given that inherently business seems I hate and transactional, but human beings are more than just transactional beings. Ultimately, we're these spirits that yearn to connect with each other and become a part of something bigger. So how do we reconcile these, these par this paradox or this, this, this duality ultimately? And you're right, there, it is the it and it is the thou. Although I will say to you, as somebody that leads the Institute at Babson, the reason why the culture at the Lewis Institute is so different, and everybody will tell you that, I have people from other teams that sit in on our team, is because while there is the I it, there's the I thou. So yes, you are hired to do this. I need this function, we're hiring you. So I might hire you for an I and I it, but I'm going to treat you differently. 
So I don't, so I think it's a distinction by how you value and treat people. Yes, I'm getting paid to do this and I'm gonna do it. But when you treat me and engage me and bring me and cultivate me as more than that, you're gonna get my discretionary effort. And that's what I think everybody wants. So yes, I'll give you an example. So, um, uh, you know, uh, Kristen on our team does incredible communications and PowerPoints and all the stuff that she got hired for, which is part of her building content. But every morning she's sending me amazing things that she's not hired to do. She's speaking to my, speaking to the bigger part of our why. And that to me is both. Yes, I'm going to be evaluating her because I'm in a structure of higher ed. I'm going to evaluate her on the stuff she does, but I value her. I reward her. I include her. I, I relate to Kristen far more than that one thing she's doing. I value her on the bigger part of the mission and values of the Institute, of which she's grown into amazing. And I believe that if you don't grow people, if you see people as transaction, I don't think that's a growth mindset. It's like, I'm hiring you, do this, do it well. A growth mindset to me is I'm hiring you to do this, but I want you to see the whole picture. What more could you be doing that could be of value to you and fortify you and fortify the organization? And that takes a lot of um, energy and heart because I don't just want people to come to work to do what they're supposed to do. I want them to love and have joy out of what they're doing. And just treating it as a transaction doesn't bring the joy out of a lot of people unless I value it in a certain way and I, I, I expand it. So I've been able to work with Kristen to expand all of what she does into something that makes much more sense to her beyond what I hired her for. I have no idea what her job description says. I don't really care what her job description says. It got her the job. Beyond that, she's now, uh, you know, I don't treat it as a transaction. And it's interesting because other parts of the college see her in a title and say, she can do that. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. This is what she does. And if you have her just do that, you're gonna, you're, she's not gonna be happy. So I think it's gotta speak to both. I don't think it's one or the other, but I think that when you talk about the purpose of business, it is to be able to be that place where you can actually do what you're hired to do and also live into something bigger if that's what you want in terms of a relationship to the company, to your coworkers, to the mission. I don't just want you to be a transaction. I want you to feed the energy in a different way. To me, transaction isn't energy. And the thou is the energy that feeds the reason and the purpose behind what, why you do the transactional stuff. Wow, that was, I think that's a very interesting, um, I think that's a very interesting way to, to view this whole, this whole problem between I it and I thou relationships, because this is a topic that Shashwat and I often have, uh, a topic that we often discuss, because 
um, in some sense, when we're on a podcast, we're talking to so many people and we try to ensure, you know, how we speak and how do we talk to people just in even in our day to day lives and really ensure that it is an I thou relationship and ensuring that we do not slip into um, these sort of modes of transactional relationships, which in some senses, I think are quite a human tendency where you treat people as a way to get to something that you're a goal you're striving for. Um, and I think it's a really interesting way you put it, how although you are speaking to someone or having a relationship to fulfill a specific purpose, you go beyond that and make sure that you take in the effort to, even though you're recognizing that there is a transactional need, but going beyond and saying, hey, look, even though you work for the, in this position, we are treating you in a way that is uh, conducive to the organization as a whole, to the system as a whole, and to the value that you can bring on, the value you can bring beyond your title. As well, well it, and, I'll, and I'll give you a perfect example that just happened. My son, who is 22 years, 21 years old, um, uh, is a top-notch coder, and he was working for a company, and the company during COVID was bought, and they did not do a performance review for over a year. And these were really, and he was a part of the team that had the best client. They were making a lot of money and he was just seen as a coder. You know, do your sprints every week and yep, we'll get, uh, we'll get to your performance. And Ross is an incredible uh, producer. And he kept asking his boss, you know, when are you gonna, the team's really frustrated. You know, we haven't had anyone talk to us about our future here, who we are, what we care about. Oh, it's coming, it's coming. Well, make a long story short, a recruiter came to him, is paying him almost, you know, 50% more than he was getting paid before. He's got a great job because the people who were recruiting him could see his value. Mm. And he left the company. Now, if they, that is a, that is an I, it is an it if I ever saw it. Just keep doing what you're doing. You're making us a lot of money. We'll get there. What they should have done, the first time that they uh, acquired the company is to talk to everybody. What are your goals? What do you care about? How can I help you grow? And I think that is what people want. People want to be able to do what they do, the it, but they want to be valued and grow they want to grow they don't want to sit there and do it over and over and over again for 25 years they want to grow how can i grow and to me if you were to say what is the purpose of a business it is to you know to make its profit and that's obviously you need to do it in order to hire people but that is just a byproduct of engaging and building relationships with the people that are giving you their energy every day. And you don't want them just to be a transaction. If they are, your business is dead in the water. You want them to innovate. Innovation comes from growth. And innovation comes from relationships between, among, and between. You know, the reason and the problem we are with our environment is we saw nature as a transaction. Oh, let's take some of this. In fact, let's take all of this. And then, oh, you know, had we actually been in relationship and been smart about how to use resources, we would probably be in a much better place than we are today. We mm -hmm. see things as transactions and things to be bought and things to be, you know, paid for, including people. Can't do that. Can't do that. I just don't believe you can do that. For sure. And that relates to a much broader point, actually, that we've 
touched on this podcast that there's a professor at the London Business School named Alex Edmonds, which we've been fortunate enough to have on the podcast. And he has a fantastic book called Grow the Pie. And it's his thesis of the book is essentially exactly what you said, which is to focus on purpose is one of the most important parts of the business. And that is how you can create positive sum games where the entire pie or all stakeholders of a business actually have their value increase. And although that may seem preposterous, it's when we focus on purpose is where the byproduct is the profit as opposed to the inverse. And there That's was, right. and there was a CEO of Merck in the fifties that said um, that, you know, if we focus on the purpose, the profits will follow something along those lines. Um, well, you know, it's interesting. I worked with Merck many, many years ago, the president of Merck manufacturing when I was at the Boston College Center for Corporate Citizenship, he was on my board and they had a corporate responsibility strategy called neighbor of choice. It was, it was called the neighbor of choice strategy and it was brilliant. And I will never forget this. This is a great story. And in one of their plants in New Jersey, one day they were spewing this yellow stuff in the air. And so it, you know, they went to all the homes in there and the businesses that were in the fence line community. And they, even if it was at two in the morning, they would knock on your door and say, Shashwat, I just want you to know I'm waking you up. You're gonna wake up tomorrow. You're gonna see a yellow cloud. We wanna assure you it's not toxic. We're gonna tell you everything it is. If you have any concerns, they went from home to home of anybody that was in that radius. And of course, the next morning, the media comes out and goes, oh my God, Merck is polluting the entire community. And they went to talk to Shashwat and all the other families. And everybody said, no, there's no crisis here. They, they came two in the morning. They told us what was going on. We know what's going on. We have a sheet here. We know what that yellow is. It's just a discoloration. So the, the story was there was no story. And there was no story because Merck had just taken care of its people because it was in relationship to the neighbors because their license to operate depended on people that lived near them and they wanted them to be in relationship with them. And I love that story. I mean, that, that takes building relationships with your community, being honest, transparent, and alleviating their fears and communicating. You know, communication is key. They communicated instead of, you know, uh, just let them fend for themselves. That, that to me was always a very powerful neighbor of choice strategy. Thank you for sharing that, Shell. So it sounds like in this story, particularly with Merck, um, I forgot the exact words they used, but they changed or they came up with this brilliant strategy or this project. Uh, I, I'm forgetting the name. Was it Neighbors of Choice or something like that? Neighbor of Choice. I was just going to say that ahead, everybody used to always say that, you know, as a business, we want to be an investment of choice, an employer of choice, a supplier of choice, and a business of choice. And they added, and we want to be a neighbor of choice. And that's so a lot. Exactly. And what I wanted to pick on is how they particularly used a certain word, certain use of language, and how that changed the game and the role of the relationships they built thereafter, the conversations they had thereafter, and then the role of the business as a whole. So I wanna speak more about the role of language in all the things we've spoken about, in conversations, in uh, relationships, and transforming the role of business as a whole. And I'd like to share a quote that sort of might set you off in a direction, which is, um, this the syntactical nature of reality, the real secret of magic, is that the world is made of words. And if you know the words that the world is made of, 
you can make of it whatever you wish. And this is a quote by Terence McKenna. And um, yeah, I, I find language to be extremely fascinating and sort of how language could be to be used to author our reality and change the narrative of anything we want to do and how somewhat it's the baseline of our existence and our communication and whatever we create thereafter. So I'm wondering, how do you see language and the role of language in all these things that we've spoken about? Yeah, and uh, so uh, as you know, uh, I co-authored a book called Creating Social Value. And you know, the book is fine, but what's really great and I'm really excited about it is the cover because the cover is actually language. What I did is we interviewed these change leaders inside of companies, social entrepreneurs, business leaders, and we took their language and it's, the, and it's completely on here. And so when I think of language, so what was really interesting is, let's go back, when I told you about starting the Uncommon Table, actually um, Stan Litow uh, said, Cheryl, I'm not sure about the word uncommon. I think it should be called Common Table. And I said, no, everybody has a common table. I want an uncommon table. He goes, well, what's an uncommon table? I said, well, I don't want that, you know, there's this notion, I always have had this uh, bumper sticker on my wall for 25 years that says, you can't solve problems with the people who created them. And I said, I don't wanna just bring the usual suspects together. If we're gonna talk about uh, education in America, I don't want just teachers and unions and everybody who's been talking about it. I wanna have a NASA uh, astronaut. I want to have a welder. I want to talk to people that have a point of view that isn't the typical point of view, right? And I want it to be uncommon and I want us to treat each other differently. And I just want it to be different. And so uncommon table is a play and a play on words. And I knew that it would activate change, right? If I said common table, it doesn't do anything. If I said uncommon table, it begs to say, gee, what's an uncommon table? Because common table is a common concept. Uncommon table is not. So I always use language for change. And good change leaders always use language because language drives change. So one that I love is uh, Dave Stengus, who was uh, head of uh, corporate responsibility and sustainability for Campbell Soup for 10 years. And when he would go into the board, he would talk about, we're not gonna have five-year goals uh, when they went to the board of trustees. We're gonna have destination goals. Gee, what is a destination goal? Now think of a five-year plan and a five-year goal and destination goal. Five-year goal is puts me to sleep. It's never going to happen. And who puts five-year goals out anyways? But if you put destination goal, you can set a very bold vision. And you don't know quite when you're going to get there, but you know that that's what you're aiming towards. So it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't say this is our five-year goals. It says, this is our destination. We want to be a company that's responsible, that makes good food, that nourishes everybody. They had a very, very bold vision. In fact, destination goals, that term, drove a new vision for the company and a new way of showing up. So destination goals was bold and directional, but it didn't prescribe how you were going to get there. Another word that I loved was radical optimism. And that was really, I thought about that, that we know what optimism is, but radical, relentless optimism draws very different energy. That is like, I am going to the wall on this. And another one I love was flexibility. 
and it was flexible and agile at the same time. And I love that word. Um, let's see, uh, corporate social relevance. I love how Babsy talks about cognitive ambidexterity, the notion of the entrepreneurial mind and the administrative mind together, working hand in glove like somebody who speaks multiple languages. If you speak multiple languages, you don't think about it. Your brain just goes, if I speak Spanish, you go into Spanish. If I speak English, you speak English. Well, cognitive ambidexterity is when I need to be creative and entrepreneurial, I am, but then I know when I have to be managerial. So I do that at Babson. I know when I have to go and put my things together and tell you what I'm doing, but then I also know how to create. And so it's that cognitive ambidexterity, uh, co-create, Corporate social relevance, boundary spanner. I mean, boundary spanner is a beautiful word because it tells me about you. It tells me that you are, it tells me how I can communicate to you. So all language is somewhat directional. I love the notion of the incomplete story. You know, nobody should have a complete story when you're, when you're engaging somebody, when you're having a conversation. It should be incomplete because you want each other to be able to co-create the final end of that story. If I go in with a whole story about who I am, what I do, what I want, I don't leave any room for you to jump in and edit yourself into that process. So I love the notion of every time you go somewhere, Tell an incomplete story because it, it invites other people to complete that story. Um, so there's a whole bunch, you know, sector blur, blurred vision. And these are all words I use because they, they are not usual in people's mind and it makes them stop to think and maybe stop to think and act differently. I think and you know some of those words. All those words, like for example, radical optimism, flexibility. I mean, even saying it sounds sounds fun. Um, yeah. Something that came to mind, like immediately for me, was that language in it of itself. Especially when you gave the example of having destination goals versus five year goals. I know in the business world, um, especially, there's a lot of you know uh, lingo um, that is used uh, time and time again. So if you go to business school, whether it's in Sydney or in Boston, I'm sure there's a lot of the same terms that are used, whether it's greenwashing or CSR, these, these terms are used uh, ubiquitously. But what I found interesting was that the words in itself create a box. And when you use a certain word, it boxes how you think about that. So even by, just by saying destination goals, it immediately removes the 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 temporal aspect of goals. It removes it. It takes. It changes the complete meaning. And on the one hand, it is like it, it removes it removes the possibility of cognitive bias, things like confirmation bias mm -hmm. or, you know, self-serving biases, but it also changes like the way we like completely how we think about things. And I think that's so interesting, especially things like flexibility. It almost seems to me like if we are to go forward, we just have to start making up words because if we make up words, we create new meanings for things. And I think yeah. you can see that with language. If you learn another language, like you said, if you learn a new word that's not in the language, like in Spanish, there's certain words that are not in English. In Hindi, there's certain, like, there's certain words that are not in, in English. The, the whole meaning of how you perceive reality changes. And so it's, it's, it's such a fascinating... Um, I just thought that was so fascinating. I just want to add it. Oh, I love what you're saying because it does change the meaning. When we invite people to our uncommon tables, you know, we always have, we always meet with them for 15 minutes, you know, a couple of days before. 
and they'll say, well, you know, do you want me to talk about this? Do you want me to talk about that? So I'll say, no. So this is an uncommon table. This is about you, and, but it's more importantly about the people who come to the uncommon table, as opposed to when I invite, normally people invite you to speak, you think, ah, oh, I'm on a stage, I'm gonna speak, I'm the person. And I say to them, it's not one to many, it's many to one. So all I'm gonna do is ask you why, you know, why do you do what you do? Maybe you can just say a little bit about what you do for a minute, but then the audience is going to drive where they want to go. And that is so unusual for people. They, you know, because they're so used to, okay, I'm going to talk about this and why I did it. And I'll say, you know, you, you may get there, but our audience may not even care about that because they've probably been on LinkedIn or they've been on the web. They know who you are, what you do. They actually want your time right now in a way that they can't normally get it. And this isn't about a lecture. This isn't about you being a stage on the stage. This is about you telling us really why you're, why we should care. And then we're gonna have people who care ask you questions. And so the uncommon table has a very different meaning than just coming and speaking because people will think they're coming to speak. And Shashwa, you know this, when people come and don't know how to play that game and they start to, spend a half an hour talking about themselves, you can feel the energy just die because it doesn't, you know, you, you know, me telling you for a half an hour about my life and why I do what I do is not as important as you finding a question that gets into me in a way that everybody wants to know. And so I think you're right. It is about creating new meaning. And part of the problem when we use words like, I mean, collaborate and partner, you know, I can always tell who uses those words that they don't know what they're saying and they don't actually know the meaning. And that's really important is that we, we have lost the meaning of really important words in our language. And so we are forced to create new ones to get that meaning back. We have to get that meaning back because the original meaning of so many words was so powerful. Yeah, and I mean, very lastly, because I know Shashwat is dying to ask a question as well. Um, I'm not too sure how familiar you are with the writer Marcel Proust, but um, Proust had one of his grievances and one of his um, pet hates, so to speak, as a writer was was hearing people use, um, I guess, cliches. He had a dis he had a detestment for cliches. And the reason he said that he, he had that such a strong feeling is because he knew immediately when people use these cliches, they meant nothing because people use them so much that what does it actually mean anymore? Because right. it's, it's, it's bastardized the words meaning so hard that it could mean anything that the person wants it to mean. And so it actually means nothing. Um, and that's right. the final comment I wanted to add onto that. And I will say that I hear people at Babson all the time say, you know, business has, will do well if it does good. And I'm like, you don't even know what that means. You don't know what that means. Uh, and, um, you know, even when I say, uh, you know, when I've been really pushing to create economic and social value simultaneously, people say it like they know what they're talking about. And I always stop when I talk to an audience, I'll say, let me just tell you what our, what Babson, you know, hopes to do. We want to create leaders who will create economic and social value simultaneously. And I stop. And then I'll, and because silence, and I want to talk to you, this book that I suggested to you talks a lot about listening and the importance of silence, that silence is a language in and of itself. But the reason I brought that up is I usually stop for a good 60 minutes and I'll say, 
think about what I just said. I didn't say create economic and social value sequentially, like go make money and give it away. I'm saying that as you're making money, you are focusing on social and economic value. Those considerations are very different than what I think you have in your mind. And we have to think about those considerations because the simultaneous is about a whole set of considerations that we have not been focused on. Then people stop and think, but if I, if I didn't stop and then go back and say it again, and help them understand what I'm saying, that it's not a cliche, that it actually means something. It just roll, you know, I hear people say it all the time and I hear people who say it and I go, you don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> and um, I'll let you go, Shastra, but I just wanted to end on a quote from Marcel Proust and he says, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And I think that encapsulates yeah. the whole, the whole um, message here. But over to you, Shastra. Yep. And that's exactly what we're trying to do at Utopias now. Um, something you said, Cheryl, which we've been talking about a lot, about economic and social value simultaneously. I often even uh, question why we have two separate words for this. I see a purpose in it, but at the same time, the fact that we have economic as one silo and social as another silo and maybe environmental as another silo and notions of people, planet, profit, three different silos. But oftentimes I, I wonder why couldn't they all mean one? Why couldn't a rich person mean that this person hasn't exploited labor or damaged the environment, which it is uh, often like this in today's reality, but instead a billionaire or rich person would be a person who's added true value to society and actually uh, fulfill the needs of people and the environment and has created these positive sum games. So ultimately at in this podcast, we're trying to redefine and sort of philosophize and rethink how we think about things. And I'd be curious to know from you, as since you said you like the word unfinished stories or something like that, the word utopia is now is somewhat of that conception, a new way of thinking about what utopia is. And I'm wondering when you hear the phrase utopia is now, what comes up for you or how would you finish that story? So two things, because I know you, I'm going to finish it differently than if I didn't know you. So I want to give you two sets of answers. So one thing is, I agree with you. And in fact, I'm thinking that the new iteration of the Lewis Institute, when I go out to sell it, is not going to have the word social in it. I actually don't like the word social because of that. Um, my first thought on utopia, because of my generation, is it locates me in, you know, um, oh, you know, uh, Hawthorne and Walden and sort of the enlightened age. And so I think you have a new take on utopia. I think it's grounded in a philosophical point of view, but you're trying to make it new. So there's a side of me that feels like for a newer generation, it might be okay. But for some people, it's uh, a lot of people have used utopia as controlled environments, right? Like, you know, that have a, um, you know, a utopian society has a set of uh, uh, described or prescribed values. So I think that I have a little hard time with the word utopia, but because I know you, 
I've extended how I think it means because I know you. But if I don't know you, it might be a bit of a turnoff for people because it comes with a lot of baggage from what people think of as utopian. People have misused that term and used it to create societies based on values that are not good values. So I just, uh, I do, you know, I, I like the notion behind what you're talking about. I think the word's gonna be problematic for a range of people, that's all. But I know what you're trying to get at, and I love, I love now. There's something about now that's very powerful to me. Uh, and you said something, you said true value. Um, and um, there's something about true now. I mean, there's something about, there's something about now that I like. Utopia distracts me from now because I now have to think about it in the way that I know it, and then you're going to have to define it. So I've learned in marketing that if you have to define something and it doesn't catch you immediately, then you, you're behind, you know, you don't want to educate somebody on what utopia now means. You want them to go, I, I have a sense, I have an intuitive sense of what they're about, and I want some of that. That's all. So I, I completely get where you're coming from. It is a very loaded word and we on purpose use this word uh, to sort of play with people's expectations because utopia has this sort of perfect society and this perfect notion, which oftentimes leads to more dystopias than utopias. And people think of utopias out in the future. One day we'll get to that place, but we're violating that and saying, no, it's not one day. It's day one. It's here and now. And there's like spiritual, philosophical tangents about that. But there's this quote that we always like to use to, to sort of uh, rethink what a utopia means. And this quote is by Eduardo Galeno. So he says, utopia is on the horizon. I move two steps closer and it moves two steps further away. I walk another 10 steps and the horizon runs 10 steps away from me. As much as I may walk, I'll never reach it. So what's the point of utopia? The point is this, to keep walking. And so I think that is what we're trying to get to ultimately, that we're never really going to get to that place one day. It's not that perfect society that you know, is to be desired for to come about one day, but it's actually just here and now. We're always in this utopia, as long as we're um, thinking about our values, we're philosophizing, we're rethinking how businesses work, how reality is structured, how language, conversations, relationships, all these different things. If we can rethink these things, if we can look at it from a new perspective, then we can ultimately create a utopia right now. And it sort of has this... Um, drive towards, as you mentioned, the public narratives, as in what is the story of now? Well, the story mm -hmm. of now is that utopia is now and it's time to take action now and it's time to move and go towards true value that we can bring to society. So that being said, yeah. Shell, uh, the last question that we like to ask everyone, uh, if you, you feel free to add anything you'd like to say, but also wanted to ask um, something we love asking everyone is everything we've said based on things about businesses and the changing role of businesses, relationships, conversations, language, and changing all these things. What does your utopia look like? And again, utopia in whatever way you might want to see it as. For me, utopia is 
the ability for every single person to wake up every day and create their own reality. And if you are creating every day, you are living in utopia. And that's how I feel. I feel that every day that I get up and create, I'm in, I'm, I'm in, I'm in the now and I'm in where I should be because the creative process is the spiritual, physical, heart, energy that feeds the world. So uh, creativity to me and allowing everybody to be free to create in their own way is utopia because they will always do it, I believe, from a point of view of love and compassion and empathy and, uh, and you know, you know, flourishing. I just believe that. I don't think, you know, I really do. I think people who create bad in the world, they create bad because they don't know how to create and they've been prevented from creating. You know, they, you know, they don't believe they can create. So the greatest power we can give people is their knowledge that no matter what they can create because uh, they're here, they're, they're being. And so that's utopia to me, everybody creating uh, freely um, for the purpose of love, life, and joy. Wow, Cheryl, thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> I mean, this whole topic that you brought up can open up an entire new door and that in itself could be a whole podcast and experience to talk about what is creativity. But to just yeah. summarize, it seems like everything we've spoken about thus far is about creativity. Business is a form of creativity. Conversations are a form of creativity and collective creation, right? I, I think what we're doing here is also a form of creativity because we're taking a bunch of sounds and uh, architecting them in a certain way to create language and then throwing it out there so that someone else can make sense of it and add to it. And it's this collective creation that we're making. So I love this notion of creativity and a quote that comes to me about creativity and the spiritual power of creativity is this um, from this poem by Khalil Gibran on children. And he says, he, he describes children or what I would say creativity as something that comes through you, but not from you. And though it is with you, it belongs not to you. And so I think that is connecting with something bigger than ourselves and allowing that divine energy or whatever you want to call it to flow through oneself and out into the world where we're yeah. creating being free flowing uh, creatures that can sort of harmonize and even when there's conflict deal with it in new ways by looking at things in a new eye so yeah thank you for sharing cheryl well yeah. i love that because you know if you think of the people that are mass murderers and, and doing and all the people that are not living a creative life who are destructing you know, if we treated them in that way and said, what's blocking your energy? What, what social worker or prison guard says, hey, they'll say, why did you do that? And they might say, because I needed money or I had to sell drugs, or I had to do that. And just say, what in your life stopped you from creating what you wanted? Because, and I think if we engage people on what what prevented you or allowed you to create? I mean, I go back, I tell you that I came from a family of people who changed the world, started new things in the world, but they absolutely believed in my creative ability to solve problems, to do things, and because they raised me that way, you know, they raised me to be creative and to solve problems. 
And if, if people are raised where they don't believe they can, they won't. If they believe they can, they will. It's that simple. There's so many topics, like there's so many more topics I'd love to talk <laughs> talk about, whether it's um, justice reform or even like business ethics, um, because as a, as a street philosopher, something I've seen in terms of the blurred vision is the intersection between philosophy and business. And I feel mm -hmm. like there's a huge gap. Because in, in the yeah. law, in the legal system, you have jurisprudence, which is the philosophy of law. But I feel like if, the, if there was a philosophy of business, these sort of questions about what is a good business and how do we create business that creates value, value for everyone, I think there would be a lot more answers to these questions. And so I thank you for introducing that, uh, that notion of blurred visions and how that creates great. Yeah, <laughs> no. Well, listen, I have so enjoyed the both of you. Thank you so much for, you know, being curious and having me on. Thank you. No, thank you so much. It's been a joy. It's been and, an and, honor. And we'd love to have a conversation with you later when you're free um, another time because I think, um, you know, I, I think having these sort of conversations where everything's buzzing and alive and you just want to keep asking questions and keep chatting, I think that's... <laughs> I'm always available. This is the space I love to live in, so I'm always available. So oh, anytime. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank you, you, you're, you're welcome to our tribe, Cheryl. I know you said if I was your age, I, <laughs> this was the tribe I'd be part of. But I believe ultimately we're all children. We've just gone around the sun yeah. different number of times. <laughs> always welcome to be a part of all the right. tribe. I I bet I'm, I'm honored to be part of Utopia now, honestly. And I loved your, your uh, definition of it. When you say it that way, you know, uh, keep walking, uh, you know, that's, that's it. That's really it. Um, so, thank you.